Hello and welcome to episode 7 of season 1 where we continue our in-depth look into 90s films and today we'll be talking about the cult classic Pulp Fiction directed and written by Quentin Tarantino and starring John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Christopher Walken and Bruce Willis. It's probably the most important movie of the decade. It single-handedly changed cinema with the use of long takes, extensive but insignificant dialogue, and the unusual, at the time, use of non-linear storytelling. The film shocked audiences with its like cathartic violence with a no-holds-barred attitude from Quentin Tarantino, and introducing a true cinephile dream, bringing back cinema back to its origins with the storyline, the dancing, the music, and the big star-studded cast playing big and minor roles in it. The movie creates such controversy because of the use of violence, or should I say suggestive violence, used at some points. Quentin Tarantino went beyond what others had stopped at. He tried to tell audiences it's okay to laugh at a violent scene because it's really meant to be funny. It's a funny situation. And he sort of turns the genre on its head. Now, Tarantino himself described this movie as a comedy and nothing less. If he said, what genre will this movie be? Well, it's a comedy. He gained influence from a film, uh, Abbott, Costello, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. It was done back in 1948 or so, around, around then. And he was shocked to see two genres in one movie. And it sort of expanded his mind to sort of try and write and create new forms of storytelling with different genres. And to basically turn these genres on its head. And he was just astounded to see that films don't have to follow a generic formula uh, or for that matter, a generic uh, genre. And he cites um, Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein as one of the greatest influences for him to get into film. I mean, I remember once seeing, I think it was on Cartoon Network, I saw Batman meets Scooby-Doo when I was a kid, and I was like, what the hell are they doing? That's pretty cool, actually. And this is exactly what Tarantino felt when watching Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, so I can kind of relate to his genuine feelings. And he began to explore um, how to achieve this in a cinematic way, and obviously he did this with Pulp Fiction. Um, the movie is quite simple, really. It's annoying how no one thought it would be. Um, and that's exactly what one critic said. How did no one think of this storyline before? Or how did no one do this movie before? But it's been done before, but it's just not been executed in this Tarantino way. And Tarantino explained the premise of the movie to be as follows. He picked the most basic overtold story films, or storyline, sorry. And he just says, well, let's just see what happens after it. You know, so let's pick three storylines that's been done over and over again in Hollywoods and TV shows. Um, you know, the uh, person taking the boss's wife out, you know, this prized possession that you can't touch, but you can take her out to a dinner or a movie, but just look after her for the evening while he does, you know, while the boss does his things. Then you have the boxer who's meant to be throwing the match, but doesn't and gets in trouble. And then you obviously have the hitman or the muscle acquiring a possession from the big boss who, with someone who doesn't pay up. You know these stories we've seen in films, TV shows. We know these stories; they're very familiar stories. Three simple, overtold stories. And Tarantino just basically said, "Well, okay, these stories have been told over and over again. So, did anyone think to think? Anyone think to sort of just follow the characters after they've done that and see what happens? And this is exactly what he does in Pulp Fiction. And this is where it stemmed from." It was received intensely. It was a phenomenon when it came out. It won Best Picture at Cannes. Torrance Tarantino won his first Oscar for Best Screenplay. Unfortunately, he lost out to Best Director for, I think it was Robert Zemeckis for Forrest Gump. But it was still a triumph at the Academy. No one had seen a film like this. This was a genre, a style of its own. People who had heard of Tarantino got hints of his approach and style of filmmaking through um, watching Reservoir Dogs, which he made in 1991 or two. Um, but the way he decided to do Pulp Fiction, there were people just blown away. 
and um, it had several talking points the violence being sort of the main one the really long dialogues about absolutely nothing just normal people talking about normal things and it was so appealing to watch it was the tarantino way of his words the pronunciation the thickness of the words resonated on screen through the voices of the actors it was something that hadn't been done before and he knew how to make actors talk his dialogue and to him this was his action of the movie and he trusted it to work and it did and uh, films try to replicate this, but obviously they don't do it as well as Tarantino does. The film actually only cost, I think it was eight, 8.5 or just $8 million to make. And it ended up grossing $200 million. So it was a massive success, especially overseas. And $5 million of that went, all, um, went to the actors. So they only really had $3 million to play around with, but they had such a good cast. And it was one of the first ever films, uh, I don't know if you know this, one of the first ever films to use the internet to advertise it. I don't know if that was any appeal to why it was so big. Um, but experts are saying it's mainly because of the late edition of Bruce Willis, who was a bankable star overseas at the time. Um, even though his last films in Hollywood were quite um, were quite bad, they didn't do really well. There were flops, in fact. Um, there was Hudson Hawk and Tony Scott's Last Boy Scout, so he didn't do really well. And Bruce Willis, his name was quite well known from the last two Die Hard movies, so Weinstein and the studio knew that um, Pulp Fiction would make money overseas. And Bruce Willis was actually only on set for 18 days and only appears in the movie around an hour into the movie. And this is just another thing to add to the unusual style of Tarantino. Hitchcock, you know, used to do this with his movies, especially in Psycho with Janet Lee and other films using a really big star to sell tickets, even though their roles are quite small. But in this case, it's to add flavor to the film and a possible shock value to the late arrival or even early departure of a big name. Which is why you have like, you know, a list of actors and then you have the word and and then you have the big star. I mean, this is the case in Pulp Fiction. They do this in all other films as well. I mean, they did it with Executive Decision with Steven Seagal. Um, the the film on Netflix called Life um, with Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds. I mean, Ryan Reynolds is only in it for 25 minutes, but they don't advertise it that way. And they used to do this with a lot of Western films as well. I mean, they'd have all these big names play minor roles and usually they'd play the villains as well. Uh, yeah, Clint Eastwood did this with Hackman in um, Unforgiven, which I think in the last podcast I said Morgan Freeman won, but actually it was Gene Hackman who won for Unforgiven, and Van Cleef, of course, in um, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, amongst other westerns as well. But yeah, the original role of um, uh, the Bruce Willis character, the boxer Butch, was meant to be—he um, was meant to be an up-and-coming boxer. And Tarantino had um, Matt Dillon in his eyes, and he wrote the role for Matt Dillon. But when he couldn't commit, he changed the boxer to almost, re- you know, almost retired, and then he casted Bruce Willis. It's amazing how a rejection of an actor changes the whole script meaning, and you know, it just meant that the scene with Bruce Willis and Vig Rames about a boxer fighting their last fight would not have existed. That script wouldn't have been written. And it sort of shows this perfectionist aspect of Tarantino. He has this true sort of Stanley Kubrick attributes of him. When he did Inglorious Bastards, he actually gave up almost, well, he almost gave up trying to find the right character for Hans Lander because they, they had to speak his dialogue a certain way. And Leo was, um, a, um, he was originally going to play it, but Tarantino was like, well, no, he has to speak it. He has to speak my dialogue in German and French as well. So I'm mean, obviously he worked later on with him in Django and um, Once Upon a Time. But the second to last day, he obviously um, met Christoph Waltz and he, he said he wouldn't have made the movie if he didn't meet Christoph Waltz. He, he was so adamant to get in the character right. It's his baby. I mean, his characters are his inventions. Those are his like real glory. He knows every single thing about them. He even writes novellas about his characters that's just for him. So he's a really true perfectionist. And sometimes he shows the actors that so they get an idea of where or where or how to play this character. 
So when Matt Dillon couldn't commit, even so early in his career, Tarantino changed the entire script to fit with who could envision to be the boxer. And luckily, Harvey Keitel, who he worked with in Reservoir Dogs, told Tarantino that, you know, Bruce Willis is actually a really big fan of Reservoir Dogs and, you know, he'd love to work with you. And so the casting came together and, you know, it was amazing. And, um, you know, with Samuel L. Jackson, of course, he wrote this. He wrote the role specifically for him. However, there was a guy who auditioned for the part. Uh, I think it was Paul Cowden? Oh, Calderon. Paul Calderon. And he gave such an amazing audition. And he actually got the part. And Samuel L. Jackson find out. And he flew to L.A. Uh, the next day and secured his role by doing an even better better role. Um, but Cauldron was quite disappointed. But, you know, he understood, you know, Samuel Jackson. He was, you know, he's perfect for the role. And he's actually in the movie. He plays, uh, he plays the bartender in Pulp Fiction where Marcellus is talking to Butch. But if Sam didn't fly back, um, or if he wasn't adamant to get this role, the world, the, you know, the world wouldn't see him as Jules, let alone the future famous collaborations with Tarantino, you know, working on Jackie Brown, Hateful Eight, Django, narrating his other movies. So, you know, it's, it's amazing how one little thing, you know, affects the future generations of film. And he was actually, his hair is actually faking it. I didn't actually know that. He's, um, he's wearing a rig, uh, wig for the entire movie. So if you actually see the... The posters, his hair is actually quite short. Um, but yeah. And with John, with John Travolta, the role of Vincent Vega, that was originally going to go to Michael Madsen, who he obviously worked in um, Reservoir Dogs. And Madsen read the script and he wrote the role specifically for him. And, you know, he shared all his thoughts and details about the character. And he he committed to another movie. And I have no idea why he would do that. I don't think he knew that Tarantino was going to be as big as he did. I think it was a film about, or it's actually called Wyatt Earp. And obviously with the huge success of Pulp Fiction, he later regretted that decision. So the role went to John Travolta, who Tarantino said was a really good actor and hadn't really done anything since Saturday Night Fever. So he met John at a cafe and Tarantino basically sat him down at this cafe and gave him two scripts. It was Pulp Fiction and the other one was Dust Till Dawn. Both of them he'd written. And um, apparently Tarantino noticed that John responded more to Pulp Fiction instead of Dust Till Dawn. And Tarantino said, look, mate, you look, you look like you, you, know, you feel Pulp Fiction more. What's wrong with Dust Till Dawn? And John, John Travolta basically said, listen, mate, it's quite simple. I'm just not a vampire guy. And Tarantino's friend, um, Robert Rodriguez, who they, you know, they did the, um, the Grindhouse movies together and um, you know, Death Proof and um, Planet Terror. He also did Sin City as well. Great director. He ended up directing Dust Till Dawn. It's with um, the film with George Clooney and Tarantino's actually in it as well. And George Clooney has the coolest tattoo in it. And I think it's one of the biggest reveals in cinema because you don't actually see the whole tattoo until the end. But um, yeah, anyways, so John got the part and apparently for research because he's playing a heroin addict. Um, Tarantino and John had both never done heroin before. So Tarantino had a friend, of course, who'd done heroin. And he just told him that he, he told John, Travolta, you need to get plastered on tequila and then just lie in a hot port. And he said, that's the best way to know how that feels. So John Travolta was quite delighted when he came home and said, listen, this is what I've got to do for the role. <laughs> I've got to get plastered. And his, uh, his wife joined him and, you know, for the research. And of course, he, um, he won an Oscar. Oh, he didn't win an Oscar. He got nominated for an Oscar for that role. Um, and that's only his second Oscar nomination. I think the other one was Saturday Night Fever. And to the date, he's never got another Oscar nomination. So... Some say it was the highlight of his career. I mean, but, you know, who knows? But for both Sam uh, Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta, these mo- uh, Pulp Fiction was the real career boost for them, you know, sort of rescuing them from the previous flops they'd done. So, you know, they had a really dire, you know, not a great-looking, promising future, but Pulp Fiction really revived Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta. And, of course, we know who they are now. 
And Uma Thurman, um, she was sort of the easiest to cast. Tarantino had a mind the entire, you know, you know, had that role for her the entire time for Mia Wallace. And um, she was almost easy, but when she uh, originally read the part, she didn't take it. She refused. And Tarantino called her up and read the script as he would, you know, envision it. And she just said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll go for it. And uh, obviously this started later collaborations, most notably in um, Kill Bill. And Uma was sort of Quinton's muse. She was sort of the one to really challenge him because she thought, you know, Tarantino needs me in this movie. I'm going to say some stuff about it. And the dancing scene with her and John, she wasn't a fan of it at all. She didn't like the music. She's like, this music doesn't go with what we're doing. And Tarantino just took her to one side and said, look, you just have to trust me on this. And that's all he had to say. And then they did it. And I don't think there's any argument with Tarantino's use of music in films. He revived Steeler's Wheels and Reservoir Dogs, fought like crazy for Dusty Springfield for this movie. He threatened even not to make the movie if he couldn't get the rights for that song. Another display of his sort of craftsmanship and perfectionism as well. And that dance scene, obviously, John usually danced in most of his movies. We know he's a pretty good dancer. And he told John that basically try some really old classic moves and just feel it and um i'll direct uma and uma he just said look go watch the aristocats and look at duchess that dancing scene he has with uh, uh she has with thomas o'malley and just mimic that and if you watch the behind the scenes as well you can see tarantino behind the camera he's drenched in sweat he's dancing with them as well so the actors are all in line and then the shooting began so we had uma thurman john travolta bruce willis you know samuel jackson they're all you know in the movie um, and committed these big stars for this eight million dollar movie, which was quite cheap, and no one didn't, no one really didn't know, um, no one didn't sort of know what they were doing with the movie. They just sort of, you know, they filmed it these basic storylines, but they didn't have a clue the way, um, sort of how Tarantino had uh, edited the movie. A, it being in chapters, and B, not in linear narrative as well. And I think what shocked the audiences was the fact that the start of the movie is, in fact, the ending. And we don't even know that until right at the end. And this is sort of the big reveal for the movie. If you've seen Citizen Kane, um, this movie sort of falls around with the narrative in terms of order. Most certainly with, um, there's a director in Japan called Akira Kurosawa, very famous. Um, he did a film called Rashomon in 1950. Um, where the film was sort of like, like rated, sort of the narrative structure was sort of redone um, by a, a computer animated film called Hoodwinked. I don't know if you've seen it. It's like a Red Riding Hood spin-off um, where the order of the film is done out of order to confuse the audience of like who the killer is. And it was so ahead of its time and it was evidently an inspiration for Tarantino in terms of use of how to do a story. He cements this as a style of his own now and even uses a style in like the mall scene in uh, Jackie Brown amongst others in the films. And the way Rashomon explores the narrative um, from beginning to end was so strange to watch. And it was only until the end did you realise how relevant the scene at the start was and that's exactly what Pulp Fiction does. You need to really keep tabs of everything that's going on and when, when we later return or uh, we watch it for a second time, we get the references, we see the movie in a new way, and it's a completely different experience from the first time you watch it. You know, for instance, at the end of the movie where Jules and Vincent are having their coffee, uh, coffee we already know that John's character is going to die later on because we've, we've just seen it happen. Vincent's, Vincent gets shot in um, chapter three. We now know why they're dressed in Hawaiian t-shirts at the beginning of the movie, why they look fed up and they just look completely worn out. And also the really hidden and somewhat comical aspects of the dialogue that has meaning to us now because of what we know is going to happen. You know, one example is Marcellus being raped in the third chapter. And then we open up to the fourth chapter, which happens before the third chapter. And we see Jules and Vincent again. And you have this shot of, um, later in chapter four, you have this shot of Marcellus, Marcellus and he's king of the world at a pool drinking a cocktail, you know, like 
nothing can bother him. Little do we know later on that in his sort of narrative, um, something awful is going to happen to him. And this gives the audience the power over the character because we know the potential future. Tarantino has allowed us to see what's going to happen to him. And again, right at the start of chapter four, with the dialogue, Samuel L. Jackson's character is preaching with Ezekiel twenty-five seventeen, And before he does that, almost the first thing he says when we fade into chapter four is, um, which is the one right after Marcellus is, um, uh, gets raped, is, is Mrs. Uh, Mar- Marcellus doesn't like to be effed by anyone besides Mrs. Wallace. So it's extremely different perspective of the scene, and the dialogue has new meaning to us because we know the eventual fate of Marcellus, um, from his character, what's going to happen later. And when we see it for a second time and now realising that this sort of foreshadows what comes later, we've already seen, and it, gives a, it sort of gives that dialogue a more raw meaning that we have that, that irony of that line. And it's not really been done in that way before, unless you're Tarantino and studied and watched films like Rashomon and Citizen Kane and incorporating this kind of style into your movie with a backdrop of three really well-known storylines. So it's, it's why this film was such a hit uh, with critics, audiences, teenagers. It just, the demographic blew the root. It just, it, everyone loved it. I mean, so what I'll do, I mean, let's briefly explore the film in terms of fan fiction and theories, because I think I can talk about camera shots and color in every scene of the movie or... or um, uh, oh, by the way, actually, um, someone actually asked me, why is it called Pulp Fiction? What, what does that mean? I mean, fiction's quite self-explanatory, but the pulp bit was, um, there was a magazine, I think it was in the 70s, kind of when um, Tarantino was uh, growing up, and then these, um, they were called pulp magazines, and then these magazines, they're kind of like um, Penny Dreadfuls back in um, ancient London time. They had these like really, really graphic crime novels in these magazines, and they were called pulp magazines. So it's kind of a reference to the 70s. So that's why it's called Pulp Fiction. But anyway, I'll take a quick analysis on one scene, and it's, it's just when Jules and Vincent go to the apartment right at the start. And it's basically the use of the camera work as well. You know, when they walk away from the camera to discuss foot massages, the camera remains at the door, showing that the object of the movie happens here. So before the camera is following them because they're walking towards the door, when they're inside, um, Jules and Vincent are either side of Brett, and Tarantino shoots it in a way that's showing Brett in a closed and trapped manner. It's giving Jules and Vincent that immediate upper hand, so sort of like boxing them in, basically. And uh, but when you're in the apartment, the camera is the camera is so key to each um, each of the characters. And of course, the first time is when um, it's the first time we see the briefcase, which glows into Vincent's face. And obviously, you could interpret this glow that shines so brightly on Vincent's face could represent his demise later on, which we don't know is going to happen yet, but we know does happen in the movie. Um, and I guess if you if you go by that rationale, then Tim Roth would then later die because then because he's the only other character I think who does have that glow in his face when he opens the um, the book um, the briefcase. But that's just a theory anyway. But like for instance, we can we can probably guess that Butch is the one that keyed John Travolta's car, and we can probably gather this the second time you watch it. I mean, you can guess it the first time, but yeah. In an interview um, with Tarantino, he never discloses what's inside uh, the briefcase and we'll never know. And Tarantino is very good at playing this game with the fans, the critics and general movie fans. I mean, Hollywood's most unanswerable questions. I mean, is Leonardo DiCaprio dreaming at the end of Inception? Is Kurt Russell the thing at the end? Is Deckard a replica? And obviously, what the hell is in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction? I mean... He basically says it doesn't matter because it's not relevant. He he does love to tease, and he does so with the incorrect spelling of bastards. Did Brad Pitt kill his wife in Once Upon a Time? You know, it's irrelevant to the story, yet rising our curiosity as fans. And it's sort of an artistic trademark just for Tarantino. And 
maybe you know the actor maybe for the actor it's key for them to know and for instance he actually told brad pitt what actually happened on the yacht with his wife in once upon a time but only he knows so he knew how to play him so only him and tarantino knows um that specific um sort of fan fiction of what actually happens but it's not it's annoying not to know but you've got to respect it and he doesn't just tease he creates amazing characters that go through a journey throughout the film and even brings little clues in the movie now with butch i mean i'm gonna talk about butch played by bruce Willis. i think he's the most interesting character i mean he's a white man named like a pit bull and he's actually the character that kills the most in the movie even though he's the only one in the movie that's not a trained killer and he kills the boxer right at the start and then later asked by esmeralda who's the cab driver if he felt anything and he says no he didn't and then he later kills Vincent for almost trying to... Um, he almost he later kills Vincent. Um, he shoots him when the toaster goes off. And then he tries to run Marcellus over um, on the way out. And then he gets entangled with some hin- hillbilly-esque environment where they're about to be raped. And thankfully, he knocks out the gimp while Marcellus is being raped. And then he leaves. And then he has a moment. And just in this moment, I think it's pure brilliance from you know character development. He changes his mind. Now... Going by his previous actions, you expect him to just go, pack up and leave for, I think it was a Bora Bora with Fabiana. He planned to go, but yeah, but he doesn't do that. You may think, well, he wants to have nothing dwelling on his mind when he escapes. He wants peace of mind, you know, so he goes back. But when chatting with Esmeralda, he doesn't really think too much about killing people, let alone bother about second thoughts, which we see when he kills Vincent because of an itchy trigger finger because of the um, the noise of the uh, the toaster. Even his name Butch is like a pit bull. You know, you act first. He's a boxer. He's not a thinker. He asks questions later. But now he has a revelation. He starts to walk back. He picks a weapon after going through three others. He doesn't pick the axe or the hammer or the baseball. He goes for the samurai sword, which is interesting because it basically signifies he's trying to leave all these American things behind, which is the plan. You see his resentment for America when Esmeralda asks him, what does Butch mean? He says, it's American, honey. Our names don't mean shit. Meaning he doesn't think he has a purpose here. So Tarantino deliberately writes that Butch does not pick an American weapon. He doesn't pick the axe, the hammer, or the baseball bat. And in fact, none of the other ones are actually weapons. They're tools. The sword is actually the only one that's designed to be a weapon by definition. And to add to this, Tarantino adds, and you have to really look for this because it's really quick and there's a lot going on in the scene. He adds a Confederate flag in the background. It's, in, it's there. It's really quick, but you have to look out for it. So you can almost assume that this is sort of an anti-racist justice movement by Butch. You know, saving the black guy being violated by two Southern American characters. And things are just not put there by accident. I mean, I've learned that from an early age. He, there's a reason there's a Confederate flag there, and there's a reason it's there at that current moment. It's the reason we see it, and it's it's very clever. Butch may be looking for redemption, or maybe saving someone who was literally minutes ago his sworn enemy. And it's a sign of discovery and odds above all else to see when the chips are down, what you're going to do. And I think Butch comes from a place of morals. And it's really hard to see that because, remember, his father and his great father fought for the country because they had to survive. Um, so, you know, they had to survive. So Butch sort of survives. Um, he sort of fights to survive as well, not in the same aspect of fighting wars, but as a boxer to provide for his girlfriend. And he wants to eventually leave America. He fights to win money and he then he fights to escape just like his father and his grandfather, which is why that watch is so important to him. It stands for something. He's a man of simple taste and tradition, and he's very old school. And I think Tarantino is trying to remind us that Butch isn't a bad guy, despite what we've just seen. I think it's a very clever, uh, a clever character he's created in Butch. And obviously, most people can explore Sam, uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character, which, you know, he has his miracle moment and decides to leave the, um, the life forever. But 
This is explained in the movie and it's reflected in the movie through his dialogue. We don't have to figure anything out. Tarantino does this for us. You know, we realise in this passage has been preaching for many years and he comes to a moment of clarity when he can when he's confronted with Tim Roth's character at the start of the or ending of the movie. So there's no hidden layers there. We're shown this. This is done on purpose of the movie, the journey of Sam's character. But with Bruce Willis's character, you really have to figure it out for yourself. Why does he go back? And you the clues are all there, including you know the Confederate flag, which is so expertly hidden in the background. And John Travolta being the main character in this is just a victim of collateral damage, which is very sad, and it's very interesting to have the main character in a conventional Hollywood movie. The bigger themes and journey are with the supporting cast and where the, theme, uh, the themes really lie in this movie. And I mean, with, I mean, with Pulp Fiction, I could really talk about this, but I should really wrap it up now because I'm going over my time limit. But listen, in my opinion... In the briefcase, it's the diamonds from Reservoir Dogs. You know, the two are kind of linked, and that's what I want to believe. I think that's kind of a cool theory. Uh, all the clocks don't read 420, as people or critics say. Uh, that's clearly not the case. Um, John Travolta should stop going to the bathroom in the movie. Every time he goes to the bathroom, something bad happens. You know, the robbery, mere overdosing, and obviously his eventual demise from the hands of Butch. And interestingly, they were saying in an interview, the reason he's always in the toilets is because heroin and cocaine addicts are quite constipated, so... Like she explains that, so it's quite well thought out. Um, did you know the um, the Stig in Top Gear is actually inspired by the Gimp in Pulp Fiction? I did not know that. I read that the other day. I was quite I was quite shocked to know that. Um, but listen, look, the movie took like five months to get past 100 uh, million marks. So it was really slow, but it was really successful, and it still is. I mean, to put that into context, it took five months for it to get past 100 million mark, uh, the 100 million dollar mark. I think it took the last Harry Potter movie two days to make 100 million. And 1994, as I said in my, you know, my last, on my last other podcast with um, Shawshank coming out, and um, obviously um, Forrest Gump, it was the third R-rated movie that year. And I've mentioned it was a very busy year for film in 1994. Even Friends in TV, Friends came out in 1994, so it was a great year. The two other R-rated films that grossed more money was um, Speed with Keanu Reeves, and I kickstarted his career again, and um, and Sandra Bullock, of course, and True Lies, James Cameron's um, action thriller of Arnie. But we know Pulp Fiction is the one that's going to basically stay cemented in time. But this movie is probably the most talked about movie anywhere you go in the world. Everyone knows it. Everyone can still discuss it. Everyone quotes it. I doubt very much a movie beats this, uh, beats this movie in terms of pure entertainment value through means of dialogue and just pure originality in terms of style. And, you know, as much as I'd like to te- you keep talking about Pulp Fiction and how amazing this film is, I must conclude and say, if you haven't seen Pulp Fiction, then that is criminal. Watch it again. Watch it for the first time if you haven't seen it. See what you notice. See what you don't notice. I mean, this film, still after 26 years, carries on to really surprise you. And most importantly, keep you seated for two and a half hours and keep, you know, it remains, it keeps, you can still be entertained by it. But listen, that's it. Um, that's all we have time for today. And if you have any questions, I'm on Instagram, Film Exploration AH, or lowercase, or one word. And uh, thank you for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Harry.